Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Thank you, Becky, for sharing that beautiful song with us. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark as we do enter into remembering Palm Sunday as it has come to be known. And we're going to look at Mark's description of what took place that day. Verse 1 of Mark 11 reads this way in the New American Standard Bible. As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately it will, He will send it back here. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their garments on it, and he sat upon it. And many spread their garments in the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed after were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. It was customary at this time every year the time of observing the Feast of Passover. It was one of the three feasts which was mandatory for every male 20 years of age or older to attend and to observe Passover in the city of David, Jerusalem. This had happened for hundreds of years in the hope of the coming of the Messiah the king. You see, there had not been a physical king, a human king, to sit on the throne of Israel for more than 400 years. Now just think about that for a moment. This nation has not been a recognized nation for even 300 years. If we were to go back 420 or 30 years ago, we would go back before the nation was colonized. Jamestown and other places associated with the colonization. That's a long time to wait, isn't it, for a king? There had been a great warrior king who had come into the city 300 plus years before this particular description of the triumphal entry of Jesus on Palm Sunday. We know him as Alexander the Great. 
When his father had died, Alexander was only 20 years of age. His father had died by being assassinated. His name was Philip of Macedon. He was a great leader. He had been able to unite all the city-states of what we now know as Greece. And it was not long until he was killed because usurpers wanted to come in and take control. But rather than that happening, his young son, Alexander, took over. Alexander had a grand plan. His plan was not simply to retake control of Greece. His plan also included overthrowing the Persian Empire. It was the most powerful empire in the world. And so he began as he marched eastward and southward. He had a great battle as he crossed over into Asia from Europe. He had another battle and then finally he found himself in the year 332 B.C. besieging Tyre. Tyre, if you know your ancient geography, was by the sea. It's where Beirut is now or thereabouts. And this city was a city that was very stubborn. It was well fortified. In fact, it was offshore. And it took quite a while for the engineers of Alexander the Great to build a causeway from the shore of the Mediterranean Sea over a mile out. Finally, they succeeded. Meanwhile, this man, Alexander, was not a man who lived simply in the moment, but he was very much a visionary. So what he would do as he was conquering one kingdom, he would send an envoy to the next kingdom he was going to take on and warn them of his coming and say, I have never lost thus far. And you can find out what I've done to those kingdoms which have resisted me, but I will give you an opportunity to lay down arms and to pledge allegiance to me and to my empire. He sent such an envoy to Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been beaten and battered for years by opponents. They were always seemingly besieged by some antagonistic kingdom. The leader of that city at this time of Jerusalem and of Judea was the high priest Jadus. Jadus, when he received the news, he was in a quandary. To his credit, he was a man of his word. He had promised Darius III, the king of the Persian Empire, that he would never rebel against him in exchange for the promise of protection and peace from Darius. So he reluctantly, yet with a degree of great integrity, sent word to this young lad, Alexander, that he could not give in to the demand, and he gave the reason why. Well, you can imagine what that did to Alexander the Great. By this time, maybe 22 years of age, it just flew over all over him. He was so angry. But he didn't do anything immediately. He first had to finish the job entire before he went. The Samaritan capital of Samaria itself. Remember, Samaria was the capital of northern Israel, who was say, or the northern kingdom. It was actually called Israel. But the Samaritan capital 
was where the king of Samaria was, obviously, and he heard about what had happened in Jerusalem, and he sent a message to Alexander in Tyre saying, I'm going to send my army fully armed to help you conquer Jerusalem. He didn't have any love loss for Jerusalem. Well, the besieging ended of Tyre. The city was conquered. It came under the tyranny, if you want to use that word, of this young man, Alexander. But he moved to Jerusalem. As he moved there, word came to Jadus, the high priest, who in effect was both a religious and civic leader of Judea at that time. And he was concerned to no end. He was fitful in his sleep. And then one night, as he slept a while, he had a very vivid dream. And the Lord came to him and said, do not be worried. I am going to protect you. And this is what I want you to do. He gave him a plan to meet Alexander and his incredible army when it reached the gates of Jerusalem. They waited, but they prepared. Their preparation included a plan to fling the gates into Jerusalem wide open. He ordered every inhabitant of Jerusalem to dress in white in honor of the coming King Alexander. He told the priest who served the Lord under him that they too should dress in their priestly garments. And as Alexander was within a few miles, this is what Jadus, the high priest, told the inhabitants of the city to do. We will all go in mass and we're going out to meet this conquering king in peace. They went. When they arrived, to their surprise, God's word came true in the dream. Because Alexander did not storm this group of unarmed people. It would have been a piece of cake for an army like his to just take them all out. But he didn't do that. In fact, he came up and spoke to Jadus, recognizing him as the leader. And this is what he said. I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw a man dressed just like you. And that man was dressed in white like you are. And he had a turban on. And then the turban was held in place by a rim of gold, metal. And he said on that was the word that I see on the rim that holds your turban in place. Do you know what that word was? It was the word Yahweh, Jehovah. And he said, I am so pleased to meet you. This dream has come true. And then Jadus took him into the city and he came into the city on his beautiful stallion. There was a certain amount of pompousness about it and prestige about it. But he came in and he went to the temple area and the scribes took out one of the scrolls that comprised their Bible, as we would say. And it was the book of Daniel. Perhaps you're familiar with the contents of the eighth chapter of the book of Daniel. It is a prophecy describing how at one point in the future, 
The book had been written 200 years earlier. It is what is called apocalyptic literature. And it was talking about a great battle that was going to occur between a kingdom which was represented by a leader who is represented in that passage of Scripture as a ram. And the ram has two horns, one shorter, one higher. And that is a picture of what at that time was known as the Persian Medo kingdom. The Medes and the Persians. The Persians had already conquered the Medes, but they had coalesced into a more powerful force. It was like a bloodless revolution, basically. And then in that eighth chapter, it describes how there's going to come a goat who is literally galloping across, almost walking on air all the way from Greece, all the way across. And he is going to unthrone the king of that nation, the Persian and Mede Empire. When he heard it and they interpreted it, he said, I believe I'm that man. And my dream is really coming true now. Here was this king, conquering king. And you know the rest of the story. He went all the way to India and conquered India. And then as he was headed back in Babylon, actually, back home, he died mysteriously. Some people think and suggest he died of alcohol poisoning. He might have, but there was some concern about foul play in that. That is a way a real conqueror in the world's eyes does his conquering. But when Jesus, as we see Him represented here, approaches at the beginning of Passover, He has begun His trek up from sea level at Jericho on the Jordan River. It may be a bit below sea level. And there was a 2,600 foot climb. Now, have you ever walked up that kind of incline? It was not straight up, obviously. It was an 18-hour walk, though. Jesus and some of His disciples, not just simply the apostles, but many disciples probably, had joined Jesus as they made their way to the celebration of the Passover. Understanding, perhaps, that Jesus was who John the Baptist has described Him to be, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the Passover lamb. Not only was he the Passover lamb, but he was the one who was given as a sacrifice symbolically every year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, a separate feast to this one that was taking place. But Jesus comes, and when he enters into the city, does he enter on foot or riding on an animal? He rides on an animal. But it's not a stallion, is it? He arrives on the back of the colt of a donkey. It was a very humble approach that Jesus took. When Alexander the Great rode in, his horse was beautifully decorated. A beautiful saddle on which this conquering king entered. But Jesus just had cloaks that he used as a saddle as he came in. 
Jesus was not the only king who entered a city that was his city where he would reign riding in on a donkey. It had become customary that when a person who was a king would come in in peace, he would ride on the colt of a donkey. So what is Jesus saying about his kingdom? You may remember when Jesus was interviewed by Pilate. Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? Do you have a kingdom? And what does Jesus say in response? My kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not the kind of kingdom that an Alexander the Great had. It was not one taken by force. It was one which was taken by love in effect and produced peace as it went forward. Jesus was talking to some people. The story is recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And they ask him this question, where is the kingdom of God? Do you remember reading that sometime in the past in the Gospels? Where is the kingdom of God? And what did Jesus say in response to that question? He said, the kingdom of God is within you. Our translations usually translate among you, but literally the Greek language is a preposition which means within you. What was he saying? The kingdom of God is not a kingdom that's physical, it's spiritual primarily, which exhibits itself in influencing the physical world in which we live and people who make up what the Bible calls the world. The world that God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So we see a study in contrast, do we not? This great conquering young man in his 20s a man who is considered probably the greatest conqueror in the history of Western history, at least. And then here's the humble king, a king who comes in peace. He is coming to the city of peace, Jerusalem. And he's coming there, to the city of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we are told the promise that God gave to King David. He said, you will never lack for a person from your line to sit upon the throne of Israel. There had been, as I mentioned earlier, hundreds of years, and no descendant of David had mounted the throne of Jerusalem and the, the throne of Judea. But here was the time that it changed. Jesus is that king. And His kingdom is different, isn't it? We who know Jesus are part of His kingdom. A kingdom needs a king. And a king insists upon allegiance. Jesus is very clear about how we become members of the kingdom of God. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He says, you were not born of blood the second time, nor the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, but you were born from above. You have to be born again, Jesus told Nicodemus, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God. And it is a kingdom that in a sense has an invisibility about it. But in another sense, it has high 
profile as far as Christ is concerned because he expects us to properly represent him. And the only way that you and I will ever rightly represent Jesus Christ is if we accept him as not simply our Savior, but also, and more importantly, our Lord. When the Philippian jailer was about to kill himself because he thought Paul, Silas, and all the other occupants of the jail that he was responsible for had escaped, and he knew what the penalty for that would be. He would be humiliated by being publicly executed. He was about to take his own life, and all of a sudden he heard the voice of Paul, and perhaps Silas too, saying, wait, we're in here. And they come out of the darkness of that dank dungeon in Philippi, and he says, what must I do to be saved? Now, how in the world did he need, know he needed to be saved? Well, I would imagine that evening, we know the Bible says that because they were beaten so badly, I'm sure they were awake at midnight. And what were they doing? They were singing hymns of praise to God. And I'm sure the content was the content of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he had listened and he had watched their being beaten. He might himself have administered the beating and put them in the stocks. But what he saw, he couldn't deny. These men were different. And he said, what must I do to be saved? Notice the emphasis on the word do. Every person in this room, unless you were born again as a child, probably has thought leading up to your coming to know Jesus, and some of you today still don't know Jesus, I think I need to do something. I need to contribute something to my salvation. Well, you can't do anything except believe and trust the Lord. It's hard for us as Americans in particular, as adults even more so, regardless of what our nationality or ethnicity is, it's hard to say, I'll just accept it because of our pride. But what we do know is we're born from above by God Himself. He gives us life where there is no life. I'm going to spend the rest of the time this morning looking with you at this passage of Scripture and associated Scriptures to discover what the characteristics of Christ's kingdom are. I've talked about the peace element. I'm not going to talk about that mainly. We're just going to look in this particular passage and the other two passages, if time permits, in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke to get a fuller picture of what took place here. Here are the two things. I'm going to go ahead and give you in simplicity the two characteristics and then elaborate on them and illustrate them going forward. The first is submission. That's bottom line. Submission to Christ the King. The second is sacrifice for Christ the King. After you know Him, you don't sacrifice something so that He will accept you. But part of His call to you is to be like Him. And in being like Him, there will be a certain degree of difficulty associated with following Him. I love the way the Bible doesn't gloss over things. Do you? I love the straightforwardness of the message of the gospel. I love what God says to us. He doesn't varnish something. He wants us to know exactly who He is. He wants us to know exactly what He expects of us. And the good news is He gives us 
that answer clearly. And in addition to that, I'm jumping the gun a little bit, but I'm the teacher here today, so I'll take my privilege. He gives us the power to do it. It's not up to us. It's up to us to submit. So let's go there. The idea of submission is this idea that we see here in this passage of Scripture. As we see in the passage how the Scripture says that many were spreading their garments on the road from the top of the Mount of Olives, 2,600 feet above sea level, and there was a valley in between. It was a valley, the Kidron Valley. And they would top that peak, 2,600 feet. That doesn't seem very high, but when you're coming from sea level or below, that's pretty high. And they're looking down. That's a 26, half a mile down. They're looking, and it's a beautiful scene to them. But as they're topping that, they see that there's need to make a pathway for their king. In the book of Zephaniah, excuse me, Zechariah, in the Old Testament, you jot this down and look at it. And if you can get there quickly, look at it with me. Zechariah, it's easy to remember, chapter 9, verse 9. A prophecy which was given 500 years before this moment. Some say even to the day. Some people have taken the effort and trouble to track it back and figure out when the Passover would be actually in the year that Jesus was crucified. And they say it's the exact 500th year anniversary. We won't quibble over that, but it had been a long time, close to 500 anyway. And this is what the prophet had written speaking for God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If one didn't believe that the Bible is an accurate source of information, take your time to study the prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, including this one. And this was something these people had waited for, for every Passover probably. They waited for the glorious entry of the Messiah riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And here Jesus assumes that position. People walked as pilgrims from all over the world. Remember, I said every male 20 years of age and older would come. The normal population, most scholars think, of Jerusalem at this time would have been somewhere in the number of three or 400,000. That's a big city. But sometimes that city would swell to as many as a million people as they would come from all over the world. Can you imagine? And so this great crowd that was with Jesus, most of them were His disciples. And I would imagine from Jericho, 18 miles, the disciples of Jesus would share Christ with those people. Jesus would talk to them and teach them on the way. There were many who threw their lot in as disciples of Christ on the way there. And so they were coming and they understood who Jesus was. And what did they do? 
Well, they spread their cloaks. Luke says, and he gives even more clarity to what that looked like, they continually spread their cloaks. Now think about it. You're about a half mile from the top of Mount of Olives to the gate entering into Jerusalem. And you don't have a half mile of cloaks. So what will you have to do once Jesus and his donkey walked over your cloak, what would you do? You'd pick it up and you'd run ahead and drop it and that would be continuous all the way down because you wanted to show respect to this king who was the king of Israel. Have you ever stopped to think that it cost those people something? I mean, this is my finest Passover robe. It was their outer garment. They had undergarments, but they only had two layers of clothes, maybe three in some cases. But they were giving their Sabbath best for the Lord. They were giving it because they honored Him. When we belong to Jesus, and if you know Him, you do. Why, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you? And you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, by the way. Well, it cost them, didn't it? They submitted to the Lord, but they did it gladly. There is the description of a colt of a donkey. It's an unbroken colt. I believe that represents areas of our lives yet to come under Christ's rulership. We sometimes, even as believers, having submitted at some point, but we take it back. Do any of you ever take back control of your life? You might say, well, you know, I'm not taking back all the control of my life. I just want to reserve this part of my life. I want to reserve some of my time for me. I need some me time. Well, I know exactly what that's like. I like me time as well. And I like it. And it's not just so I can have fellowship with the Lord. I could try to dress it up and make it look like that. But sometimes I just want some me time and it's selfish. That's not to say that the Lord doesn't want us to rest. He gave us six days to work. And on the seventh day, what did He say? Rest. Enjoy. And I believe you can enjoy your work when you understand for whom you're doing it. If you belong to Him... What you do is something that He gives you to do. And it does not matter. Let's be very clear. As long as you're not violating any ethical or moral principle found in the Bible, in your place of work, your place of work is your place of ministry. It's where God has planted you to use you. So understand, work can be great joy if you're understanding to whom you belong. And you know that He has sent you there to be salt and light in that particular situation. The fact that this colt had never been broken fits quite well with the law of Moses. I'm just going to give you one reference. In Numbers 19.2, we're not going to look at it, but it talks about a heifer that's going to be sacrificed, a red heifer, and many of you scholars of Old Testament know that meaning and the importance that is to the reestablishment of the temple, which I believe will be rebuilt before Jesus Christ comes again. So at any rate, it says that 
that heifer has to be unused. And Jesus is sitting on something that's never been used. It was set apart for the sacred use of Jesus, the king, as he's coming in. And he is totally pure, of course, into the city of Jerusalem. In the midst of this excited crowd, an unbroken cult remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls all creatures, great and small. That's saying a lot. Of, don't you imagine? We know they were crying out. And they didn't just do it once. I mean, it was loud. They were being raucous in their worship of the Lord. Undoubtedly, they could hardly contain themselves. And here Jesus is sitting on the saddle that was made by his apostles, putting their robes for a saddle for him. And he's riding. And that colt of a donkey is just as still as still can be. That's what happens when Jesus comes to a person and Jesus saves a person. Somebody in this room could stand up right now and give testimony. How prior to your receiving Christ as your Lord, your life was a wreck. Your life was filled with a great deal of turmoil and just like turning a light on, when you submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord, you had this incredible peace sweep over you. I've seen it so many times. I've been privileged to be in the delivery room when people come to Christ. And they all say essentially the same thing. I feel like something's lifted off of me. And something has. But this is what Christ does in our lives. You come under Christ's submission, as do I, by obeying Him. These two disciples were sent in. They were perfectly submitted. If you'll read exactly what Christ tells them to do, the writers say they did exactly what they were told to do. And also, the way Christ described the Syrian scenario that they were going to encounter, it was exactly the way Jesus said it would happen. Christ is utterly trustworthy. He's God. He cannot lie. And if that were not enough, in His humanity, we know what the Bible says, that Jesus Himself said, I do nothing except what I see the Father doing. I say nothing except what I hear the Father saying. Jesus was fully God, for sure. And we saw that in the passage from Philippians 2, where the Bible talks, us, talks to us and tells us that we are to have the same attitude, mindset that Jesus has, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But what did He do? He took on the form of a slave. Whose slave was Jesus in the flesh? It was, he was the slave of God the Father. He was the servant of God the Father. He's described as the suffering servant. He says in Mark 10, 40, Five about himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The greatest act of service that Jesus Christ performed for the Father is that he went to the cross. He submitted to the Father. And the Bible talks about how he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. To whom did he humble himself? He humbled himself 
under the mighty hand of God. Knowing what the Scripture says in the Old Testament, and it's repeated in the New Testament, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that in due time you may be exalted. This was a little premier exaltation of Jesus. Jesus knew what lay ahead. I thought about what must have run through the mind of the Lord. I have no way of knowing for sure. But remember, He was human. And remember that He had His moments being put under great pressure by the devil. And I can imagine as He mounted that colt, He probably exhaled. He probably thought, finally, Father, I've come to this moment. I have lived for this moment. I have the knowledge that I was sent for this week. This is the beginning of the end for me. But in a way, it's the beginning of eternity for so many other people because of what I'm going to do in obedience to you in order that you can save men because a proper sacrifice has been given for the sins of mankind. Isn't this an incredible gospel? Jesus, I'm sure, had some butterflies too. There was probably the devil's attempt to make him anxious, maybe suggest, hey, who do you think you are? You're just a carpenter from Nazareth. You're a peasant. How do you get off presenting yourself as a king? But the Father spoke to him. He was in that kind of contact, submitted to the Father, and thank the Lord he followed through. Aren't you glad he followed through? Praise God. Although the orders of Jesus seemed absurd to these two whom he sent in to get this colt to an adjacent village, the two did just what they were told to do. Now I'm going to throw something out to you to think about. Do you think there was purpose in Jesus to send two people to get the donkey? Have you noticed whenever Jesus sends people out on a mission, He never sends them out alone. He always sends them with another person. Now this is what I know about myself. I'm not going to give too much detail, but I know if I say I'm going to do something and I don't soon get someone else to join up with me, to go with me, there's a likelihood I'm going to bail out. But if I get Pastor Sam, I say, Pastor Sam, let's go do this in the name of the Lord. Well, I'm going because I've enlisted someone to help me accomplish the mission. And we're on a mission together. Two are better than one is what the book of Ecclesiastes says. For pity the man who falls down doesn't have someone to help him up. We're all subject, even as redeemed people, even as people in whom Christ dwells, we're all subject to falling down, aren't we? We're not perfect, even though we've yielded ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. That's why we need each other. That's the importance of fellowship. Being together, do not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. Encourage one another daily. Why? So that your heart may not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need each other. And two are better than one. If someone attacks one, that person doesn't stand much of a chance. But if there are two, there's one that has your back. Now we know there's a third person in this scenario. It's Jesus Himself. 
He's the third chord in that strand that is talked about in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Here's the questions for us. Are we obeying Jesus in our home life? With our spouse? With our children? With our parents? Are we doing what Jesus says about the way we're to be in relationship to them? What about your job? Are you an employer? How are you treating your employees? If you're an employee, how are you treating your boss? Are you giving him your best? And if he's hard to work for, or she's hard to work for, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. That's what Paul said to people who had no life of their own. What about in financial matters? What about something that seems absurd, like these two guys? There's no hint of pushback on their part. Jesus speaks to them. They do what He says. They don't ask questions. I have a couple of grandkids, and my eldest is seven, and I don't think I ever tell him anything to do without some pushback. And that's very concerning to me, but he's not my son. But uh, I say, son, I call him son, I say, son, you need to do what I'm telling you because I'm the boss in this situation. <laughs> and something happened when he was staying with me on Friday. I love him to death, you know, too much, really. But I, I, I had to get stern with him. I kind of stood up over him, and even though he's big in his own eyes when he stands next to me, he's about half my height, you know. And I said, listen, I'm telling you, you do exactly what I say. And all of a sudden, he just got like that, you know. We tend to have an answer when we're told by the Lord to do something. Anybody here beside me like that? I am by nature very independent. I, I want to chalk it up to the fact that I'm a firstborn child. But really, I'm a child of Adam. That's my problem. I was born with a sinful nature. And I want to do what Mike wants to do. So I have this battle. But as you grow in submission to Christ, you really yield to Him. Then you learn what these men learned. Submission. That's what. Now here's the other thing. Submission, but sacrifice. I've already alluded to the fact that Jesus sacrificed His life. But let's think about, was there sacrifice on the part of those who threw in with Christ. And not as a hobby, but as a life choice. A radical choice to be His disciples. Well, there was. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, we saw this last week, what is he to do? Deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The cross is an instrument of death. We have to die to ourselves in order to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus sets the pace for us. This is lovely. Jesus will never ask you to do something He hasn't already done. And He sets the tone. And He gives us the power. I mentioned that earlier. Where does the power come from? It comes from being attached to Jesus. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By implication, if I'm abiding in Christ, that simply means depending upon him exclusively, trusting him, then he is going to be in me 
and we will come together. We're going to work together. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I yoke up with Jesus Christ. The yoke speaks of work, doesn't it? And Jesus enlists us to work alongside Him. Wouldn't you like to have Jesus as your partner in any and every endeavor? That's who we know as our Lord and Savior. It could be said of Jesus that He led His regiment never from behind, but at the front. Some of you are fans of old musicals. Gilbert and Sullivan, maybe you know some of their stuff. Gondolier 1 talks about how the commander in question in that play that was operatic, sort of, that that, that particular individual was leading from behind That's not leading at all. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the prototype of thousands of sacrificial leaders that dot the pages of history, but His leadership is unique. It's unique in this, that He always is in front of us. Always. He knows what lies ahead. He knows what it's like to be afraid. He knows what it's like to be attacked by the devil himself. He knows all the things that we face when we follow Jesus. And He knows the voice of Satan which comes against us and instills fear into us. Jesus. Remember earlier in the life of Christ before this event, if we were to turn to Mark chapter 8, beginning with verse 27, we'll see Jesus asking questions of His disciples. He'll say, who do you say that I am? And they begin to say what other people say. Some say you're of Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And others say you're the prophet, an unnamed prophet. He said, but who do you say? And Leave it to Peter. He spoke up. And this time he said the truth. You are the Son of God. You are the Christ. And then what did Jesus say? He says, Simon, son of John, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. God has revealed it to you. And Peter listened probably with a beam on his face, I would have been beaming too. And he listened to what Jesus had to say. And Jesus says, listen carefully, guys. We're headed to Jerusalem and we're not turning back. And when I get there, I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be mocked. And then I'm going to be crucified. And on the third day, I'm going to raise from the dead. And they began to look at each other. And then Peter calls Jesus aside and he says, Lord, Don't do that. Surely you don't need to do that. And then what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, because you're looking not for God's interest, but for men's interest. In particular, he was saying the interest of you guys. That's what he was saying. Because if it's bad for me, you probably think it's going to be bad. Maybe not as bad, but it's going to be bad for you on many fronts in your life because you've given up everything to follow me. Make no mistake about it. Jesus knew what He was facing when He crested Mount 
Olivet, and he was going down every step that foal of a donkey took. He knew where that donkey was taking him to an appointment with death on a cross. If we were to go today to Jerusalem, there is one of many churches there named St. Anne's Church. And archaeologists have excavated underneath it, and what they found is the fortress Antonio, where Pilate resided. It was where Jesus was mistreated by his captors, where they blindfolded him, folded him, and they wove a thorn of crowns and jabbed it down on his skull. And then they would take reeds and beat those thorns into his scalp and he bled. You know how you bleed so profusely in your head area? And then they spit upon him and mocked him, said, who hit you? Who hit you? All those things. In St. Anne's Church, above the area where Jesus was brutalized, we will find, if we were to go there today, a mosaic. And the mosaic has Jesus and His cross. He's not on the cross. He's not carrying the cross. This is what He's doing. He's embracing the cross. What does that represent? His love for you. It was your cross. It was my cross. It was my sin and your sin that Jesus died for. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What was the joy set before Jesus? You and I. We were what He went to the cross for. How could we reject Him? How could we deny Him His rightful place in our lives as our Lord? How could we with any sense of understanding. That's what Jesus did for us. He definitely sacrificed Himself for us. He looks for people who are willing to lay down their lives in His kingdom work. And we understand that it's only what we give that we really keep. Jesus says in Mark chapter 8 that He who wishes to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall save it. Jim Elliot, a great missionary martyr in the 1950s in the Amazon basin in Ecuador, before he went there as a student at Wheaton College, he was only in his 20s when he died. He wrote this in his journal. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. What is important to you? Eternal life should be. This life is very fleeting. It's passing away quickly. This life is given to us to know the Lord and to serve the Lord and to bring His kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But also we look forward to leaving this life, going to be with Him and reigning with Him forever and ever. Thank the Lord that He is that kind of Lord. Jesus does not ask us to make sacrifices for His kingdom without promising to give a return on them. If we were to go to Mark 10, 28-30, after Jesus has spoken to this rich young ruler, you remember the story? And the rich young ruler 
couldn't do what the Lord told him because he was a rich man and he was sad and he walked away. And the Bible says, Jesus, this is something, Jesus felt love for him. He loved the man because the man couldn't let go of that which he treasured more than a possible relationship as a servant, let me say it, a slave, literally, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we know that our Lord is our owner. The colt had a deeper value, I would imagine, to its owner after Christ had used it. Don't you? Probably people would come and just want to touch that colt after Christ had been raised from the dead. I read about one of my fellow hometown people, Elvis Presley, on the 40th anniversary of his death, this was in August of 17, one of his jumpsuits sold for a quarter of a million dollars. Now, if I had bought that jumpsuit off the rack and I was gone, nobody's going to pay anything for that jumpsuit. <laughs> Why? I wore it. Jesus rode that donkey. The point is that, look, you will gain so much more. And I'm not trying to appeal to your negative side. You'll gain so much more. You'll gain abundant life in this life and the promise of eternal life going forward. Let me share a couple of illustrations with you and we'll be done. A woman by the name of Eleanor Chestnut was orphaned as a pre-adolescent in the backwoods of Missouri. She was adopted, and she made her way through high school. And then she was such a good student, she was accepted to medical school in Chicago, lived in an attic on meager means. She graduated, and rather than parlay her professional preparation into a lot of money, what she chose to do was to go and serve as a missionary in China. The board which appointed her was the American Presbyterian Board. She went, and by her own choice, she lived on a dollar and a half a month. Now this was in the late 1900s, 1800s rather, the late 19th century. So you could live on a lot less in, in that country, even more so. When it was discovered that she was doing this so she could buy bricks with what was left over so they could build a hospital and so she could help people more fully with their illnesses and tell them about Jesus as they came there for help, she received a letter from the board saying, spend the money on yourself. And this is what she sent back. I don't want to spoil all my fun if I do that. It was fun for her. Now she was crazy, you might think, but that's your problem if you think she was. <laughs> Later, she amputated one of the men's leg, which had become gangrenous, to save his life. And the flaps that she was very careful to try to take the skin that was not infected and form a cushion where there used to be flesh, and it didn't take. And she was noticed after that, soon thereafter, limping around, and it was discovered that she had operated on herself and taken pieces of her skin 
and transplanted it onto this peasant's leg. In 2005, rather not 2005, 1905, she was killed by anti-foreign mob while tending to the head wound of a Chinese boy in the crowd. She sacrificed. The Lord loved her if she'd never sacrificed, if she's his child. But sometimes he calls us, that's a radical example. But she was radical. Look, being a disciple of Jesus is big stuff. It's not about becoming a pastor. It's not about becoming a missionary like Miss Chestnut necessarily, but it is committing to put Jesus Christ first in your life and keeping Him in that place. A man by the name of Carnegie Simpson wrote this, Jesus is not one of a group of the world's great. Talk about Alexander the Great and Charles the Great and Napoleon the Great. Jesus is not the great. Jesus is a part. He is the only. Another man, Charles Lamb, a British critic and essayist, bright man, said if Shakespeare were to walk into this room, we would all stand to greet him. But if that person, talking about Jesus, were to walk into this room, we would all bow down and kiss the hem of his garment. This is what the Lord wants us to live like in humility, submitting to Him, blessed submission. And then being willing to do whatever He gives us to do, even if it costs us, and by the way, it will cost you. It'll cost you your pride. It'll cost you doing your will rather than His will. But there's really nothing else for us to do if we want our lives to matter now and forever. Let's pray. If you've never trusted Christ, if you've never given Him the Lordship, why not today? Why not in the privacy of your heart say, Jesus, I want You to be my Lord, not simply my Savior. I need to be saved, Lord. I am a sinner. I know I can't save myself but I know it begins with my acknowledging Your Lordship in my life. And so I'm asking You, take control of me now and give me the power to follow You the rest of my life. Thank You, Jesus. Amen.